0: The first time I visited the site of the Semba Palace is 10 years ago. It's in the spring, I remember. And uh, out of my imagination, when I go up and see the beautiful garden, there's a big lake there. When you walk around the lake, you can see a lot of trees and uh, flowers. But you cannot find any wooden architecture there, because they are destroyed by the fire the first time I saw the, the destroyed stone architectures, I just feel a deep sorrow and accumulation. Uh, at that time, I can't help tears a bit. I don't know why, because I'm, I'm not an emotional person. I'm a very reasonable person. But at that time, you cannot help to, to tears. I think... The Summer palace, not only as a palace for Chinese people. This is the real treasure of the human being. It has been completely destroyed by the British army in the Second Opioid War. Stolen land! Give it back! Stolen culture! Give it back! Vice, Vice, Vice. Vice World News presents the Unfiltered History Tour colonialism. As told through 10 objects. Hello everyone, my name is Yi Wen. I'm now a current BPP law student. Before that, I spent my three years in the UK to study art. That's the reason I'm so interested in the Summer Palace topic.
1: Hi, I'm Juliet Patrick. I'm 21 years old. My mum's from China, so that really built my interest in a lot of Chinese art. So for my dissertation, I looked at loot from the Summer Palace. The Summer Palace was a series of garden palace complexes. And you have date back to the Qing dynasty. It was built over the course of three emperors, which was about a century long. So the first of these three was the Kangxi Emperor and he ruled from 1611 to 1722. And then his son took over the Yongzhen Emperor from 1722 to 36. And then his son, the Chenlong Emperor, took over until 1799. So that's made the Summer Palace very important
0: because it represents imperial culture in the Chinese history.
1: The types of art that were made during the Qing dynasty, it really varies from emperor to emperor because they each had their own specific taste. Kangxi kind of liked traditional almost wares, so there was a lot of Ming imitations, so the blue and white Chinese porcelain, for example, and his son, the Yongzhen Emperor, he really enjoyed simplistic, very elegant and refined porcelain, and then... The Chenlong Emperor, he <laughs> was really extravagant. So he created revolving wares, which are these porcelain vases, which are composed of lots of different parts, like a jigsaw puzzle. And you can rotate them, and the scenery inside changes. So it's almost like a film in a porcelain vase. The whole dynasty and these emperors were all ethnically Manchu. When they took over initially, they were a minority rule. So they had to conform a lot to the Han Chinese culture and way of life while still keeping some of their Manchu identity. So that's why you see kind of this move from very simplistic or traditional wares to very extravagant because there's this move away from the need to, to conform as they consolidate their power. So the emperors of the Qing dynasty were originally based in the Forbidden City, a palace complex in the centre of Beijing where all of the governmental business would take place. It was quite hot and noisy, especially in the summer. So the summer palaces were basically a holiday home, (laughs) a very extravagant holiday home northwest of Beijing. Through the next emperor's reigns, it became expanded upon. The Yongjun Emperor added courts and office buildings so they could conduct business. And then under his son's rule, he imitated lots of scenes from across the empire. Shops and theatres and farms and places of worship and ancestral shrines.
0: Qianlong is a very important emperor
1: of the Chinese history. His father, the Yongjun Emperor, he created such a surplus in economic income, which allowed for a lot of prosperity through his son's reign. Qianlong is the emperor who really
0: enjoyed the gardening life. So he asked his French missionary to design the British garden for him. It's the first time in the Chinese gardens inspired by the British garden. Summer Palace in Mandarin, we said... Interpreted in English as the brightness of garden. So at that time, the uh, summer palace is called the garden of the garden. The garden, of the garden. That means that it's the perfect garden in the world.
1: What's really significant about these summer palaces is a lot of them weren't for residency, they were purely for collecting artworks. Everything that would be made in the empire would be amassed in the Summer Palaces.
0: Qianlong installed a lot of
1: jewelry
0: treasures in the Summer Palace. Jades, golds, paintings,
1: um, rubies, porcelain, ceramic, I have to mention ceramics, any tribute items as well. It became basically an encyclopedia of the Qing Empire. During this period, Britain was smuggling opium into China, which was a very addictive drug. China had a controlled system of trade. They would trade with outside countries, but not to the extent that the British Empire wanted. And in 1729, there was a ban on selling and smoking opium because it was becoming so rife. And then by 1796, all importing opium was banned. The first Opium War, which was declared in 1839 on China, was the result of China trying to bring this smuggling to a halt. And by 1842, they were defeated and signed the Treaty of Nanking, which, among other things, conceded what is now Hong Kong to Britain. So after the end of the First Opium War, the the British continued to smuggle opium into China. And that's what led to the Second Opium War. To cut a long story short, four years into the war, the Chinese had captured and tortured a number of the British consulate and other members of the invading force. On this pretext, the British and French sent their forces to the Summer Palaces on the 7th of October, 1860.
0: The French and the British army, they just go directly to, to the Beijing, and uh, they looted the Summer Palace and the uh, neighborhood around the Summer Palace, like the Uh Yihe Yuan, another garden, and the Xiangshan. They looted this neighbor for two days. Then they left for three days. Then the British army came back.
1: The British were led by James Bruce, the eighth Earl of Elgin. Elgin ordered the soldiers to begin setting fire to the summer palaces and set
0: the fire on the summer palace and destroyed this brightness of the garden, the garden of the garden.
1: The act of looting and the destruction of the palace was an act of humiliation towards the Chinese. Prince Gong, who was left in charge of China after much of the court had fleed Beijing, he signed a treaty on October 24th, so pretty soon after the burning of the palaces. That treaty legalised the opium trade, and it granted Christians full civil rights, and it gave a lot of silver to Britain and France, and they got Kowloon Island as well, the British. So all of this loot, after it was taken by the British, was gathered into a prize auction. They were able to bid on what they wanted to buy, and the proceeds were divided among the British soldiers. As a result, these goods would show up at lots of exhibitions or private collections, and so they've been dispersed across the world, basically. A lot of museums are very hesitant to label these objects loot. So, for example, at the Royal Engineers Museum in Kent, they have an imperial throne known as the Gordon Throne after the person who acquired it. The deputy creator there, James Scott, says that he He doesn't doesn't mention mention the word loot at all because they try to keep it as, quote, neutral, unquote, as possible. They try to obscure the fact that they were loot, and they still are.
0: The British Museum never clearly indicate which one piece was looted from the Semper Palace directly. If the British Museum, they admit this piece of the artwork is from the looting, it will set a precedent for other governments, just like the Chinese government, like Cambodia government, ask for the repatriation from the UK. That's the reason they never make to the public that this piece is artwork is from the looting.
1: Chinese history and goods and cultural output becoming loot. it robs the Chinese people of their ability to learn about their own history, um, which I think is one of the most significant things about this discussion on repatriation and so-called contested Goods. It's the fact that, you know, the general public suffer because they lose these connections that they have with their history. When
0: I study in Source, because my major in art and archaeology, we have a lot of courses actually in the British Museum. The feeling is very complicated when I saw these pieces of art because it's original from China, right? But the Chinese people cannot get access to our own artworks. You have to travel to the UK to see these pieces of art. So that's the feeling very complicated for
1: me. Some people think, you know, all's fair in war, but there's certain rules to wars at the same time. And, you know, they can't undo the burning of the palaces as no place can undo destruction of architectural sites to the original condition. But they could somewhat undo the looting through repatriation, if you like. It's about acknowledging what was done wasn't right. So you can't really say sorry and then keep them and really mean that apology.
0: British Museum is so-called a civilized institution. It's very dis- disgraceful for them to showing off their looting history. It's a colonial history that the British government they start the Opium War which leads them to destroy the Zema palace and looted these
1: marvelous pieces artwork to the UK. I think a lot of British people aren't ashamed of the empire. We kind of embrace it and I think that's a lot to do with the lack of education about it um, and especially the atrocities that were committed in the name of the empire. There was the Uke of Poland 2015 or 16 that found nearly half of people thought it was good and like 40% was proud of it. And I know you can't cover like every single bad thing that's ever happened in the curriculum, but I think when it's so personal and it still impacts our country and was a major part of British history, it should probably be covered. But I think the point is I don't know if the average British person walking down my street would know about the atrocities and how significant that is and I think maybe if they did know that their thoughts would change
0: This podcast was produced by Jesse Lawson with research from Marta van der This episode features sounds from BP or not BP The Unfiltered History Tour is a Vice World News production.